Welcome to Reimagining Atlantis. My name's Tori, and I'll be your host. You came back again? I am humbled and grateful for your support. I am really surprised by how fast this podcast is growing. I owe it all to you, and I'm not sure how else to say thank you, really. You are becoming my hero in this chapter of my life. If you get a moment, please, give my show a rating. It helps with the algorithms and such. I have obsessed my entire life over Atlantis, and being able to record it and share it with you makes it so much better. It justifies my behavior. I am constantly thinking about how all of these stories are related and what's the next story I need to tell you. My mind keeps on reminding me that I still need to tell you about the different time frames and the Gorgons and Perseus, the Libyan Amazons, the Minoans, the Phoenicians, chariots, the Thebian Heracles and Tyrian Heracles. And that would be Tyrion of Tyre, not of House Lannister. I want to share with you the latest in ancient DNA evidence. Yet, with everything that I know, I still have so many questions. And I hope that this reaches enough people that maybe somebody can say, Hey, I know where the Amazon Mounds are. Or, Hey, I know where the River Tritonus is. Or, Hey, look. We found this lagoon or this marsh. I want to hear about some of the ancient stories of Leptis Magna, and I want to see if my theory is correct about the Gorgons. By sharing with you what I know, I'm also going to share with you the agony of the unanswered questions. I have to say that since I've been listening to ancient history and Greek mythology, I have been both fantastically appalled and appealed by them. I guess that's what makes the Greek tragedies so good, huh? Although I've never officially gone to school for Greek studies, I have fallen asleep to more lectures from major universities than I can even begin to describe. As you get older, the more you chase that blissful sleep. For me, ancient history and Greek mythology is my happy place. Atlantis is just the epitome of my elation. And I'm constantly always trying to figure out how all of these stories fit with Atlantis. So I'm so excited that I get to share it with you. For this episode, I'm going to tell you about Poseidon's Temple, and that was located next to that golden palace in the center island. To accomplish this, I'm going to use the help of the following authors in order from oldest to youngest. Plato, a classical Greek philosopher and school headmaster who is our primary source for Atlantis, living roughly around 425 BCE. The story of Atlantis was written around 360 BCE. Strabo was a Greek geographer, philosopher, and historian who lived in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, during the transitional period of the Roman Republic into the Roman Empire. He lived from about 36 BCE to about 24 CE. 
Strabo's life was characterized by his extensive travels. He journeyed to Egypt and Cush, as far west as coastal Tuscany and as far south as Ethiopia, in addition to his travels in Asia Minor, or modern-day Turkey, and the time he spent in Rome. Travel throughout the Mediterranean and the Near East, especially for scholarly purposes, was popular during this era and was facilitated by the relative peace enjoyed throughout the reign of Augustus. I'm also using an article from realhistory.co that was written in 2019, and the link is in my episode description. In the last episode, we talked about the Golden Temple that was the center of Plato's island. Next to that golden temple was Poseidon's temple. This was open to the public, and it sounds absolutely stunning. The entire outside of Poseidon's temple was plated in silver and had pinnacles of gold. A pinnacle looks like an obelisk or a lighthouse-shaped structure that is narrow and becomes even more narrow towards the top. I don't know how many I can say, but I can safely say probably more than four. I'm also not clear about these pinnacles, but I picture them as steeples to his temple. Poseidon's temple is also where the laws of Poseidon were engraved, on the pillars in this following passage. The laws were inscribed by the first kings on a pillar of Orichalcum, which was situated in the middle of the island at the temple of Poseidon. Poseidon's temple was the same length of a stadium. Its width was about a half of a stadium, and he's ambiguous about the height. How Plato describes it is it's of proportional height. Seeing how about a half stadium is approximately 300 feet, that's equivalent to approximately a 30-story building. That's really tall. So I'm going to go with the proportional height of an actual stadium. They also put a statue of Poseidon in his temple that was so large that it touched the ceiling. I'll use the temple of Zeus in Olympia as a scale for height, and Zeus's temple had a height of 43 feet, or 13 meters high. This is still very large and is about the size of a four or five story building for scale. I visited the Parthenon in Nashville, Tennessee, and I felt like it was profoundly huge. It was 32 feet or 10 meters. It is my dream to visit Greece and see the actual Parthenon, but I'm going to have to substitute for now for the replica instead. Here's Plato talking about the outside of Poseidon's temple. Next to the Golden Temple was Poseidon's temple. It was a stadium in length and a half stadium in width and of proportional height. Poseidon's temple had a strange barbaric appearance. Outside of the temple, with the exception of the pinnacles, it was covered with silver. The pinnacles were covered in gold. Around the temple, they placed statues of gold depicting all the descendants of the ten kings and of their wives. How barbaric. We still use this term, and we associate the meaning to mean uncivilized. But to the ancient Greeks, it just meant not Greek. Also, The fact around Poseidon's temple had the original ten kings and their wives leans more towards an Egyptian architecture than a Greek architecture. I debate on whether this equality for the masculine and the feminine is from the invasion of the Libyan Amazons or a general evolved equality that was more of a divine nature. 
in my mind, I see a mixture of Greek and Egyptian style for the golden statues of the husband and wife. I see the statues standing in pairs all the way around the temple, as opposed to the Egyptian style architecture that shows the husband and wife seated and usually seated apart. Back to Plato and Poseidon's temple. Here, he's describing the interior. The interior of Poseidon's temple had a roof made of ivory, curiously interwoven everywhere with gold, silver, and orichalcum. The walls, pillars, and floor were coated with orichalcum. They placed statues of gold, and the god himself was standing in a chariot driving six winged horses. His statue was of such a size that his head touched the roof of the building. Around him were a hundred nereids riding on dolphins. There were also, in the interior of the temple, other images which had been dedicated by private persons. So inside of Poseidon's temple, the ceiling was primarily ivory, or at least ivory in color, with gold, silver, and orichalcum accents. The floor, the walls, and the pillar on the inside were all made of this red orichalcum. There were golden statues standing around, probably lined along the walls, or maybe in between some pillars on the inside. Somewhere in the temple, probably in the center, maybe in the back, was the statue of Poseidon riding inside of a chariot. The chariot was being pulled by six winged horses. Some people believe that the translation is winged seahorses. Poseidon did have a son with Medusa that was a winged horse named Pegasus. However, he's the only winged land horse known. I'm going to have a side rant here. Pegasus is a name, not a species. It's not Pegasuses nor Pegasi. I know we are in the era of generalizing people as Karens or Chads, but this is still not technically correct when referring to an entire subclass of the human species. Plus, when people use Pegasi, they're using a Latin plural but Latin hadn't been invented yet when Pegasus was born. <sighs> I'm going to end my rant now. Seahorses. They have little flippers that look like wings. And Poseidon, being the god of the sea and of horses, both depictions could be accurate. All around the statue of Poseidon were 100 nereids riding on dolphins. The fact that there are water nymphs and dolphins really leans more towards a sea-like decor. So Poseidon being pulled by six winged seahorses makes a little bit more sense. Perhaps they were seahorse monsters? Here's Wikipedia describing the Nereids. Nereids are female sea nymphs or spirits. The fifty daughters of the old man of the sea, Nereus, and the oceanid, Doris. You do remember where oceanids come from, right? Right. Oceanus. The Nereids often accompany Poseidon, the god of the sea, and can be friendly and helpful to sailors, such as with Jason and the Argonauts in their search for the Golden Fleece.
Poseidon's temple sure does sound beautiful, but I don't think that Poseidon's temple actually had doors, though, because Plato talks about how the bulls are free range around his temple. Here's Plato. When the kings were gathered together, they consulted about their common interests and inquired if anyone had transgressed in anything and passed judgment. And before they passed judgment, they gave their pledges to one another in this way. The ten kings, being left alone in the temple, offered prayers to the gods that they might capture a sacrifice that would be acceptable to him. There were bulls who had the range of the temple of Poseidon, and after prayer, they hunted the bulls, without weapons, but with staves and nooses. The bull, once caught, was led up to the pillar, and the throat was cut, so that the blood fell upon the sacred inscription. I'm going to pause really quick. That pillar that they're talking about here, that's the one mentioned in the previous episode with the quote, The laws were inscribed by the kings on the pillar of Orichalcum, which was situated in the middle of the island, at the temple of Poseidon. The kings gathered every fifth and every sixth year alternatively, thus giving equal honor to the odd and the even number. Now as far as that fifth and sixth number thing is concerned, the best I could find was the ancient Greek belief that odd numbers were masculine and the even numbers were feminine. I'm open to hearing your stories because this is still a weird piece to my puzzle. Anyway, back to Plato and the throat cutting of the bowl. On the pillar, next to the laws, there was an oath inscribed that invoked mighty curses on the disobedient After slaying the bull, they would burn its limbs. They would fill a bowl of wine and cast a clot of blood for each of them. After having purified the column all around, the remaining parts of the victim would be put in the fire. Then, they would draw from the bowl in golden cups. As they poured the wine in the fire, they would swear an oath. They swore that they would judge according to the laws on the pillar, and would punish him who at any point who had already transgressed them. For in the future, they would not intentionally offend the writing on the pillar. They would neither command others nor obey any ruler who commanded them to act other than according to the laws of their father Poseidon. They would drink and dedicate the cup of which he drank to the temple of a god. This was the prayer which each of them offered up for himself and for his descendants. When darkness came, after they drank and satisfied their needs, they put on the most beautiful azure robes. They would extinguish all the fire around the temple, and they would sit on the ground over the embers of the sacrifice by which they had just sworn, and they would receive and give judgment. At daybreak, they wrote down their sentences on golden tablet and dedicated it together with their robes to be a memorial. Poseidon had another temple, and a city, and it shares a very similar story to Atlantis. It was called Helike, and here's an excerpt from Strabo. For the sea was raised by an earthquake, and it submerged Helike, and also the temple of Poseidon. 
and Eratosthenes says that he himself saw the place, and that the ferryman said that there was a bronze Poseidon in the strait, standing erect, holding a hippocamp in his hand, which was perilous for those who fished with nets. Hippo means horse, and campos means sea monster. So that would be a sea monster horse, or horsey monster? I'm going to read to you now this article from realhistory.co, and I've linked the article in my episode description. Again, I've shortened this article, and I encourage you to read the entire thing. On a winter's night in 373 BCE, an earthquake struck the region around the Gulf of Corinth. This in and of itself was not especially noteworthy. Earthquakes are, after all, relatively common in that part of the world. What was more noteworthy, however, was the fact that this particular quake appears to have triggered the phenomenon known as soil liquefaction. Soil liquefaction occurs when soil or sand that has been saturated with water is subjected to intense stress, such as during an earthquake, causing the soil to almost instantly lose its sheer strength and stiffness. This effectively converts the previous solid material into liquid. It is relatively common occurrence during major earthquakes and is one of the primary threats to urban environments during seismic activity due to its capacity to undermine or otherwise compromise the structural integrity of buildings and infrastructure. Dramatic example of the effects of soil liquefaction after the 2011 churchquake earthquakes, the effects of liquefaction can range in scale from a localized area, such as small as a few meters across huge swathes of land, such as the case with Christchurch following the 211 earthquakes that led to parts of the city being abandoned. In the case of Helike, it was liquefaction on the scale of the latter that would ultimately bring about its doom. Based on the accounts of ancient sources and recent archaeology, it is believed that the ground beneath the entire city was liquefied in response to the earthquake in 373 BCE. The city, in its entirety, literally sank. While the settlement dropped below sea level, research suggests that the earthquake also caused the section of the coastline 12 stadia away, roughly 2 kilometers or 1.3 miles, to collapse into the sea, triggering a tsunami that engulfed the sunken city, sealing its fate. According to ancient sources, there were no survivors. In the space of perhaps as little as an hour or two, the city of Helike, capital of the Achaean League, was gone. The ancient historian Strabo recounts that the Achaeans organized 2,000 men to recover the bodies, but were unable to do so. Though underwater, much of the city remained visible from the surface for centuries after. Many ancient scholars visited the submerged ruins including Strabo and Eratosthenes, with the latter describing a magnificent bronze statue of Poseidon, whose outstretched arm posed a hazard to fishing nets. Panaces reported in the 2nd century CE that the city walls were still visible, but not so plainly as they once were because they were corroded by the salt water. 
Roman scholars and writers that visited the site during Ovid in the late 1st century BCE and Aelian in the 3rd century CE. It has been suggested that the fate of Helike was the inspiration for Plato's Atlantis. Helike was destroyed just about 13 years before Plato wrote Timaeus in 360 BCE. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. Your support means everything to me. If you want to help make this podcast grow, please subscribe and tell just one other person about this podcast today. We are each our own hero in this story we call life. That means one person has the power to change everything. Who is the one person you tell today, hero? Let's help keep Atlantis alive, or at least reimagined. A new episode will be released every Thursday at 9 p.m. See you then. Wait, are you still here? Thank you. It's appreciated. Here's a clip for next week's episode. So here we are, geographically, in northern Egypt. We're looking out at the Mediterranean Sea. And to the left, over there, we're pointing, is the Pillars of Heracles. Where's the front? Personally, I see the front as being within the Mediterranean, if I'm looking at it from that perspective. People have been saying the front because they're looking at it over here from America. And then of course it would be located in front of the Straits from that perspective, right? So what would beyond the pillars mean then to us? Would that mean inside of the Mediterranean? If this is the case, then beyond the pillars would mean into the Atlantic Ocean to both the Egyptians and the Greeks.